If you have a way of seeing God's Word, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. You know, we've been going through experiencing God. Uh, I hope you've been able to keep up with the, the study there in your home and your devotional life. Uh, I know the Connect groups have been working hard to magnify what you're learning there uh, in your personal devotion. Uh, and then I hope to come alongside of your study, uh, basically to complement what you're going through uh, as you relate to the material. And today is unit four. So we're in unit four or week four of experiencing God. And the memory verse for this week is this. Jesus said, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Now, if you go back and you look at the phrase, the one who has, it's literally the idea, the one who possesses, the one who possesses my commands. Uh, those who are guided by them, those who are driven by them and keeps them, that means they live by them, is the one who loves me. And then it says, and the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I also will love him and will reveal myself to him or to them. And so what we're reading here is basically the idea that there is a proper response to the love of God. And that's what I want to continue to talk about as we started last week, the response to God's love. So look at the introduction. It says, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, when it says it's being poured out, I mentioned this last week, it's, it's a lavish uh, twist to who God is and his love for us. And basically, he pours his love out into our hearts. And then our response to God's love is not only a reflection of his love for us, but also our worship. And it's important to note that worship is not for our benefit or our partial obedience, nor an event that we attend. It is expressing value to God through our lives. And y'all, that's what true worship is. We can come here and celebrate him. We can celebrate his presence. We can celebrate him through his word. We can celebrate him through our giving and all the aspects that we've gathered to do that. But the thing that we need to understand is it goes even further than that. It's the consuming love that he has for us. And it's the consuming love that he desires that we have for him. Matter of fact, uh, Robbie mentioned that our first uh, cultural value is Jesus is our lead story. But our third one is this. Worship is a lifestyle. And it says this. Worship is more than a song or a lyric. It's more than what we do with our voices. It's also what we do with our hearts, heads, and hands as well. When we gather, the intention of our worship is to sing his praises to celebrate what he's doing, to hear and respond to his word, and to give to his compassions. However, worship is not just an hour we gather each week. Worship is a lifestyle in which the songs we are singing and the message we are hearing on Sunday echoes throughout the week. Worship, and we've already sung about this, is magnifying Jesus everywhere all the time. It literally is expressing highest value to God through our lives in response to who he is and his love for us. Y'all, that's powerful when you think about it. But it is. The love that he has for us, we respond with a like love. That's his desire. 
And so the first thing I want you to see there on your outline is this. Receiving Christ's love for us is basically the whole idea of where our salvation is. It's that idea of salvation. So God's love for us can only be truly seen really from the backdrop of our condition of hopelessness. Before you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, here's what Paul says about it. He basically is saying, we're going to look at this, how, how bad it really was. We were in a hopeless situation in which nothing could be done about our situation as it involved in uh, us ourselves. God had to do something about our situation, whereas we couldn't do anything about our situation. And that's what Paul was trying to explain to us in Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through whom? Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about that. The word justified, it literally means declared and made right when, when uh, there has been a wrong, which implies that the wrong, listen to this, is totally incapable of making itself right. Now I want you to think about this as it relates to what I just read. You are or were the wrong. Before you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there was nothing gratifying to God about your life. I'm just going to say that. You were an object of his creation. That has something to be said about that. But that's kind of where it begins and ends, really, with the whole attitude of what God was after. There was something that had to come else as it relates to us and our salvation. So what was our hopeless condition? What did it look like? First of all, look on your outline. We were without strength. As I've already said, nothing we could do about it. Look at verse 6. For when we were still without strength. It literally describes helplessness. If you want to see a picture of helplessness, look at a newborn baby. That newborn baby is helpless. There is nothing that that newborn baby can do for itself. And when you look at that newborn baby, you, you realize that left undone, left in that present condition, left there by itself, there's nothing it can do to preserve itself, to, 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 to allow itself to continue to grow. There's nothing that can be done. That's really a picture of what we were before salvation. Totally powerless over, uh, over the ability to over, over, uh, overcome sin, bondage, and even the enemy. Totally powerless to please God. Next, we were ungodly. If you look at verse 6 again, it says, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Another way of looking at that phrase ungodly is the idea of undeserving, unlovable. Think about that. It sounds harsh when you think about it. But again, here's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to help you to see the helplessness that we had, the hopelessness that we had. And he's comparing it to the backdrop of God's love for us and how he reached out to us. He's trying to show us the condition before we came to know Christ. Next, we were sinners. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were what? Still sinners, still sinners, not capable of reaching God's standard. Anytime the word sin is used in scripture, here's what it literally means. It means one of two things. It either speaks of missing the mark or it speaks of the fact that God has a standard that none of us reached. That is the idea of sin. That is the idea of the person who is a sinner. The, and, and by the way, here's what we need to understand as it relates to what Paul's trying to describe here in this text. He's basically saying God hates the sin 
and we know this phrase, but what? Loves the sinner. He loves the sinner. Next, before we came to know him, we were objects of God's wrath. And y'all, that should horrify us, how close we came to God's wrath. Look at verse 9, much more than. He's basically saying there's even better news. Having now been justified by his blood, he's talked about that before, his sacrifice, we shall now be saved from wrath through him, through Jesus. Now think about that. Sinners apart from Christ are in direct line of God's wrath. That's the reason we must tell people about the Lord. There's the reason we must make disciples. That's the reason we must exist as a church to fulfill the mandate that he's placed on us as individuals, but not on just us as individuals, but us as a church. We must continue because there are many out there who are in the direct line of fire of God's wrath. Next, we were enemies, God's enemies. Look at verse 10. For if, or the word can be translated since, we were enemies. Now think about it. What did God do through Jesus Christ? The Bible says we were enemies, enemies of God. Now, because of what Jesus has done, we're considered a child. Now, I want to show you what Paul does. In the midst of what he's doing here in chapter 5, what he's doing is he's creating a great contrast. And it's one of those things where it's almost like between light and darkness or purity and sin. And basically, the contrast he's trying to draw is the hopelessness of us, of where we were before we came to know Christ, and the love that God has for the hopelessness that we were in. And that's what we're going to look at now. So look at this, his demonstration of love in the backdrop of our hopelessness. So first of all, he died for us. He died for us. Look at verse 6 again. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then Paul makes this caveat. He basically says, and here's something else to consider. For scarcely, verse 7, for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's basically that whole idea that when it really comes to who God is, we are so undeserving of the fact of what he's provided for us. Next, he died for us, but next, he justified us. And we talked about that. Look at what he says in verse 9 again. Much more than having been justified by his blood. So one day, here's, here's what that picture is going to look like. When I stand before him, before I stand before the righteous judge of heaven, when, I, when we stand before him or when I stand before him, it won't be to bring up my own record. Thank goodness my record won't be there. But the fact of Christ's record, Jesus' record of a sinless life, of a, a life of atonement, of a life of perfection that died on my behalf, that took care of my hopelessness, in which Jesus was, could literally say, based on the text that we're reading, Jesus could literally say, hey, I made him righteous. I declared him righteous. And therefore, he is worthy to receive not only the love of God, but the home of God, heaven itself. Now think about that. That's powerful when you think about that. Next, he saved us. Verse 9 says, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
Every time you hear about the idea of being saved, if you're really taking this proper context in Scripture, the idea of being saved, the whole concept of it, is not just describing the lostness of where we were in Christ, but literally what it's referring to is the fact that we were subject to His wrath apart from Christ. We've literally been saved from the punishment of God. That's literally what the idea of salvation literally is. And the rest comes with it. But it's really to take us away from the direct line of God's wrath. But next, and this is important, his demonstration of love, he reconciled us. Verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now think about that. That's a redemption passage. It's a restoration package. It's, it's the whole passage. It's the whole idea of the fact that we were reconciled. There was something missing in the relationship between us and God that only Jesus himself could provide. He reconciled us to God. What was wrong, listen, here's what the word reconciliation literally means. What was wrong has been made right. At the moment we receive Christ's love, we need to realize something miraculous happens. And I shared this with you last week. We change. There's a transformation. We become indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He guides the transformation. But at that moment, we become an object of God's love. Pretty powerful when you think about it. So here's the question. How do we respond to that? How do we respond to it? What does that even look like? So look on your outline. Responding to God's love for us is worship. What he did on our behalf was our salvation. Nothing you could do about your salvation. When we get to heaven, it won't be a celebration of what we've done. It will be a celebration of what he's done on our behalf. That's the celebration. And so therefore, the worship that happens here today and continues into your week, as our cultural value says, echoes into the week for you. It's a lifestyle. will continue throughout eternity. And it's all because of this. 1 John 4, 19, we looked at it last week. We love because he first loved us. Therefore, our love is a response to his love for us. And that would mean this. Look on your outline. Worship is sacrificing our worldly allegiance and ambitions to God. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, all of you are familiar with these verses. this verse, I'm sure. He says, I beseech you, therefore, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present or offer yourself, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He's basically saying this is your logical expression. If you want to put it towards logic, here is this. There, there should be a logical expression to what he's done for you. That you present yourself, that you offer yourself. That's the language of sacrifice. He sacrificed for us that we may sacrifice for him, that we may present ourselves holy and just, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done on our behalf. And therefore, as a reality of what he's done on our behalf, we now present ourselves as he says we are. But then, if you read the text here, we live as we are by what he's done on our behalf. How do we do that? By not conforming to this world. 
but a, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It starts in the mind. It starts in the worldview. It starts in seeing who God says you are that you may prove what is that good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. Again, the key here, the key to these two verses is the one word present or offer. That's what we do. It's a response in view of God's mercy. So here's, here's what's really interesting about it. God takes the initiative in worship. He made us worthy. He declared us righteous. We are made uh, we're made uh, perfect in Christ before God because only he can look on perfection. He provided that for us. We're not exactly a good representation of that right now. But in our worship, we give that back to him. So he always, if you think about it, when it comes to our worship, even the worship and love we have for him, he always makes the first move. That's what Paul was saying. He created us. He saved us. He forgave us. He blesses us. He protects us. Then notice what we are to do. We are to offer ourselves or present ourselves. This is our worship, to present ourselves. Now, now here's where we think our worship begins and for many of us ends, in our song, in our song. So when we think worship, the first thing we think of is we're going to sing, now, can that be an expression of worship? Absolutely. And it is. The psalmist tells us that over and over again as, as songs go before the Lord. It, it's a sweet aroma to him. He loves our worship. But the worship doesn't begin and end in song or, or, or uh, singing. It continues throughout our lives and through our lives. But then we go from responding worship to practical worship. And Jesus tells us what that looks like. And this is difficult when you think about it. Look at Luke chapter 9. Then Jesus said to them all, If anyone desires or wishes to come after me or follow me, here's the prerequisite. Let him or them deny themselves and take up their cross. How? Daily. Does it say the first day of the week, daily. It's a daily exercise, sacrificing themselves daily. Daily implies the principle of a lived out practical faith, not only a practical faith, but a practical worship. And then he says, and follow me. That's continual obedience. And that goes back to our memory verse for this week. So Luke 9, 23, listen, is the invitation to follow Christ. It's not just the invitation, it's the prerequisites to follow him. So these commands are not required before salvation is granted, but what our response should be to that salvation, that we would deny ourselves, that we would take up our cross daily, that we would follow him in continual obedience is the highest calling of worship that we can have before God. Jesus told us. That's what he's telling us. Next, worship is focusing our attention. In Matthew chapter 6, we read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount sermon, probably the greatest sermon ever preached. I think no one would deny that. And Jesus is there, and he's really talking about the practicalities of the faith. He's talking about what it means to be a follower of God or to respond to God properly. 
And he's basically, at times he is pulling from the old covenant, but he's primarily shifting everything into this, what appears to be this relationship that God desires to have. But then he gets into the, some of the basics of what it looks like, and he talks about prayer. So in Matthew 6, 6, he says this, but you, when you pray, now what does that phrase, when you pray, was it? it implies what? That you're praying, right? <laughs> that you're praying, go into your room, and when you've shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. What he's talking about, he's talking about quieting your life. He's talking about putting complete focus on him, getting away to do that. And your father, who's in the secret place, the place where you're focusing your attention, will reward you openly. That means when you leave that closet, when you leave that place, there's something that will happen in and through your life. So how do you focus your attention on God in worship? You got to quiet your life. Now, isn't it interesting that was given to the first century people gathered around there? Do you think it's a little more difficult 2,000 years later to pull that off? Think about it, what we're up against. There's so many things competing with our attention. And if I were the enemy, which I'm not, by the way, <laughs> but if I were the enemy, I would probably have designed a world just as it is right now. I probably would have. Something to take our attention, because when the attention is gone, the reality of what we're trying to focus our attention is gone. And so when you begin to look at what God desires, Jesus is even saying, hey, listen, this is where you're going to meet me. This is where you're going to leave that moment. That's where you're going to feel empowered as a Christian. That's when you're going to be resolved in your relationship with God. It will come when you do these things, when you're focused your attention on me. Next, worship is expressing our affection to God. In Mark chapter 12, this kind of goes back to what last week's memory verse was. Jesus answered him and said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That means you don't look any other place, look to him. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. It all hinges on this. And when you really think about it, that is the worship part. So this was writ originally written in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God was literally saying, hey, I want you to leave from your life a legacy to the generations that come after you that this be in place. And it's talking about a practical love for God in worship of all areas of your life. But let's break it down. You are to love God with, your, with all your heart. And I've shared this with you before, but it's a perfect place to put this. That implies a pure heart. It's a love that's not hypocritical, but it's sincere. It's a love that's not defiled, but one that is pure and innocent. And by the way, God only responds to a pure, sincere, surrendered heart. Secondly, you are to love the Lord your God with all your soul. It's a passionate love. Now think of this. God doesn't want your duty. He wants your desire. He wants to be your desire. He doesn't want ritual and religion. 
or rules and regulation. He wants a relationship with us, a passionate relationship with us. God wants us to love him with our emotions, our feelings, our core of who we are. He wants us, he wants to be the object of our desires and our affection. Now I want to ask you this, is that the kind of love you have for him? Does it look anything close to this? But that is what God desires. Next, you're to love God with all your mind. It's a perceptive love. God wants you to love him by growing in knowledge of him and his word. He desires that. There's a prominent evangelical pollster named George Barna. I think many of you followed some of his work. He's come across some very interesting statistics over the last probably 30, 40 years. And I'm going to be honest with you. Some of what he pulls, what he discovers is appalling. And this is one of those times where it's appalling. But I want to share this with you. This is, he, he kind of builds this thought. I saw this article just this week. He says that most Americans blend their beliefs to create a customized worldview that is far from being biblical. Now, y'all, he says it all right there. They customize their faith. They customize their worldview. He, he, he basically says America is a nation in crisis because its citizens do not hold a biblical worldview and will instead add their own worldly ideas. It's really the idea that what, what, what's happening in America is we're trying to merge the worldly ideas with the ideas of God in some way. To, to basically have God, but get what we want also. Your, and by the way, he says this, and this is so true. Your worldview, when you think about it, is the filter that you use to see and understand and experience and respond to the world around you. When you think about it, your worldview is everything. It is. Your worldview is everything. Your worldview enables you to make sense of the world. It, you need a worldview just to get through every day. The choices that you make as a result are a result of what you believe that are described by your worldview. The biblical worldview is important because it's a way of experiencing, interpreting, and responding to the reality that's consistent with biblical perspective. It's basically when you have a biblical worldview, you're taking your cues, you're making your decisions, you're living your life based on the authority of God's word. He's saying, he's saying that is important, but it's rare in this society in which we live now. The biblical worldview, listen, I'm, I'm sorry, it is interesting. Now, this is what's so shocking, but you can see how it is. It is interesting that we have a nation where almost seven out of 10 adults call themselves Christian. That means you walk on the street and seven out of 10 will tell you they're a Christian. But Christianity and the whole idea of what a Christian is has changed dramatically over the last several generations. Now, here's what's interesting of that number. Seven out of 10 call themselves or identify as Christian. This will blow your mind. But only six out of every hundred try to think like Jesus and live like Jesus. 
Seven out of ten are out here trying to create their own worldview with a Christian topping. And yet we see that probably only 6% of the population is actually living out a biblical worldview that follows the direction of Jesus Christ himself. A study released earlier this year by the Cultural Research Center of 1,000 pastors found that only 37% of Christian pastors in the United States have a biblical worldview. One in three. While the majority possess what's called a hybrid worldview. They take parts that are developed through the world and hold it up and see if it sticks to the biblical worldview. Of course, it doesn't stick, but they, they force the issue. They take a little here and a little here and a little here to kind of bring it together. Barna, the one who kind of put these thoughts together, stressed the importance of pastors and helping parents raise godly children, saying that pastors who guide parents to know Jesus more intimately will allow those same parents to have a biblical wisdom to guide their children. And y'all, that is this guy's personal passion to see that take place. That it not just be something that we harness and love God in the way he desires us to love him and hold a biblical worldview, but it's something that we would, we would literally help the next generation that comes after us to understand it like we did or like we should. Isn't that alarming, some of the stuff raised there? But y'all, that's what it means to love God with all our mind. When we look at him and accept him for who he is and what his word says. Lastly, you're to love the Lord God with all your strength. And again, this is a practical love. 1 John 3, 18 reads, Dear children, let us not only love with words or tongue, but also with actions. God wants us to love him with our gifts and our abilities. He wants us more than, he wants more than the praise of our words, more than our heart and feelings. He, he wants the whole consumption of who we are. He wants us to find peace in him. You know, when I think about all these Christians, seven out of 10 identify as Christian. And yet we see that only 6% really strive to live a biblical worldview. Here's what blows my mind. Can you imagine the struggle between that 6% and that 70%? What must be going on with the other 64%? I mean, I mean, let's just, let's just give the benefit of that. Maybe the Holy Spirit is working in some of their lives, okay? But here's what you got to understand. There's a great conflict that has to be going on in their soul. And I'm here to tell you, I think that the reason the Christian church is not working for a lot of people and many are falling away, go look at all the mainline denominations. They're all, there's a falling away like we've never seen in many generations. And here's what you'll find. The churches that hold and teach a biblical worldview are the only group of churches that's actually growing in America. The rest, with this build your own faith, are all shrinking away. I mean, think about it. That's logical, really, when you think about it. 
If you can't guarantee this being the authority of God's word, if you can't guarantee, hey, there's something I'm going to build my life upon and I need direction and, and, and understand it because guess what? I bought into this biblical worldview. Then guess what? You're going to want to learn more about that. But if you have a teacher or a preacher that's up there and we're like, well, we're just kind of trying to figure it out. Maybe let's see if it sticks. No wonder it's not growing. It's not built on anything that's stable. Worship is using our abilities for God. And it really comes down to this. True worship invades every part of our life. Colossians 3.23, you're familiar with the, word, with the verse. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So here's the application this morning. What are you, worship, what are you worshiping? Here, here it is. It is whatever you're giving your greatest allegiance and ambition to. Whatever you are giving your greatest attention to. Whatever you're giving your greatest affections to. Whatever you're giving your greatest abilities to. That's what you're worshiping. So in conclusion, worship is magnifying Jesus. Making him large. Expressing highest value to God. And through our lives in response to who he is and his love for us. I want to close with this. I've shared this with you before. Francis Chan, many of you have heard of Francis Chan. Uh, he wrote the book Crazy Love. And a lot of people don't realize that he was inspired to write the book from a devotional that Oswald Chambers did many, many years ago. And I want you to listen to what Oswald Chambers says, or you can read it here on the screen. If what we call love does not take us beyond ourselves, it's not really love. If we have the idea that love is characterized as cautious, wise, sensible, and never taken to extremes, the idea of radical, then we have missed love's true meaning. This may describe affection, and it may bring us warm feeling. But it's not a true and accurate description of love. Have you ever been driven to do something for God, not because you felt that it would be useful or your duty to do so, or that, you, or, or that there was anything in, in it for you, but simply because you love him? Have you ever realized that, that you can give things to God that are of a value to him? Think about that. Or are you just sitting around daydreaming about the greatness of his redemption while neglecting the things you could be doing for him. And that being your worship. That's really what it is. So it takes us back to our memory verse. Jesus said, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father. I also will love him and this is key, and will reveal myself to him or her. Think about that. How many of us are sitting here today waiting on a revelation from God, waiting on a word from God? Well, he basically says it's going to come through a life of obedience that we will hear him. And that life of obedience is motivated by our love and response to his love. That's what experiencing God is trying to say. That's what Jesus was definitely saying. 
And that's what we know to be true when it comes to a biblical worldview. I want to invite you, if you would, to just bow with me there where you are. We're not going to sing here in just a moment. We're just going to go to the Lord right there in your seat. I, I just want to, I really just want to ask these questions again. What are you worshiping? What gets your attention? What gets your greatest affections? Would you say your life magnifies Jesus? Would you say that the way you conduct yourself and live your life is an attempt at living out a biblical worldview? What are you doing to help the next generation grasp the love that God has for them and then helping them to respond accordingly? Where do you find yourself? Father, we come to you right now. And Lord, as you're stirring the sermon in my own heart, Everything we've said here today is nothing new. But Father, we just need a new word from you, Father. We realize these words that we shared this morning were written 2,000 years ago. We don't need anything extra biblical. We just need something to help us to understand more fully who you are, your love for us. And what you desire our love for you to look like. Lord, I just pray right now for each of us in this room, Lord. I pray for the one that's sitting here battling between all the messages of the world. And then coming to a place like this and hearing a message that comes from your word. And it being in contradiction. Father, I just pray for them that they would fall on the right side of your word, Father. Father, I pray for the parent who... We all know it's very difficult to raise a child in this day and age, to raise up that next generation. But Father, I pray you put a passion in those parents' hearts, Lord, to, to love you the way you desire to be loved. And you tell us how to love you. Father, I pray that would be ever before these parents that are gathered here today. Father, I pray for the individual soul that's here this morning. I pray they'll do a careful evaluation of where their affections truly lie. Lord, help them to realize that there will never be peace in their life until they align themselves with who you are, what you desire for them, and them hearing from you, Father. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you've taught us here today. Help us to leave this place more inspired than we've ever been to live passionately for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope God has used this sermon this morning in your heart. We're getting ready to be dismissed, but let, let me uh, first of all tell you that Robbie's going to be back there at the table, uh, Shelby Mission Camp. If you have questions about what that could possibly look like for you or more information you'd like for that. But also, let me remind you of this. Our government gives us the ability to speak into its shaping and its worldview by voting. 
And I found out something this past week that I wasn't aware of. Do you realize that evangelicals have a very low turnout when it comes to voting? We've been given the ability to speak into the system by voting. We've been given the ability to, to, to bring a biblical worldview that comes with us in our vote. Now, will it be a perfect vote? No, no vote's ever been perfect, okay? You know that, right? No vote's ever been perfect, but we have the ability to speak. So here, I'm saying all that to say this. The last day to be able to register to vote in the midterm elections is October 14th. And I want to encourage you, if you're not registered, go register. Go register. It's important that we speak what we need to as a church and as a people into the system. It's very important. You're dismissed. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank <clears throat> you.